The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org. So let's get started. I'll keep this short. Um, so our next speaker is Jordan Stefaniak. Pronounced right? Stefaniak. Pontiac. Pontiac. All right. We'll do that. So he is a PhD candidate, University of Birmingham, and he specified in the UK, not in Alabama. Alabama. See, I wouldn't have even known that. Uh, he's uh, studying philosophy, looking at the intersection of philosophy of mind with Christology. We were chatting about this earlier, and it's quite interesting. I'd love to chat with him more about it. Uh, he is also a research fellow at the Center for Faith and Culture at SEBTS, the president of the London Lyceum, and he lives, despite so many activities related to London-sounding names, he lives in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. With his, well, this, this is the one, I was going to tell you what he told me. He has only one wife and two kids. <laughs> and I specified that's a good that we keep it in that order. Um, also, great guy, he has no cats, so trying to keep evil out of the house. Uh, over to you. <laughs> well, first, I'd like to thank Brad and everybody here for allowing me to participate. I'm super excited about this, though I'm also very nervous. Um, I think if you asked anybody 15 years ago if I'd be standing here, there would be an absolute no. Um, I am in the very much, I don't know who's the most popular, Andy Stanley, Stephen Furtick, those sort of things. That was me 15 years ago, very much into, you know, s smoke and not smoking like that, but like, you know, the fog machines with the lasers and everything. So I'm still learning to inhabit the magisterial Protestant tradition, uh, though some of you since, would say since I'm a Baptist, I'm not complete yet, but I think, okay. I'm, okay. I think I'm there. Um, <laughs> two things I want to clarify before I begin. First of all, I want to define analytic theology because I imagine I consider myself sort of an analytic theologian, and a lot of people don't know what that means. I get asked all the time, so I'm going to be doing some of that. So let's just define that up front. When I think of analytic theology, it's simply it's a method, and there's two things about this method that are particular. First of all, it is clarity and precision. So oftentimes you're going to see propositional sort of logic, you're going to see syllogisms. Uh, arguments formatted as one, two, three, four, definitions broken out with four different ways to categorize it. It's just a method. So when you think, if you want to think Protestant scholasticism, it's that sort of method brought to the 21st century. That is what's behind analytic theology. Now the second thing that will distinguish it most of the time is a usage of analytic philosophy to solve various problems in theology. It's not reliant on analytic philosophy as a school, as a discipline, because there is no real school of analytic philosophy you've got all over the map. But the idea is, let's take some stuff that we think is useful and good and try to defend various aspects of Christianity or solve different puzzles that you find there. So that's what analytic theology is. If, if you're unaware, hopefully, James, you've got Grace Utanta, who, who is a great, I would consider partially an analytic theologian. So you can tell me if I define that improperly. Uh, the other thing for me writing is very much a form of knowing. So this is not a complete process yet. So I'm looking forward to your feedback. 
Um, the title of this talk is Making the Great Tradition Great Again, uh, Classical Defense of Modern Metaphysics. Admittedly a little bit cheeky, but it's fun, so why not? So I'll go ahead and begin, and I, I'm going to go in and out of reading versus sort of summarizing and explaining. So classical theism, it's got a storied tradition. All of you guys know that. However, I think there is a growing segment in contemporary Protestant, particularly evangelical culture that is seeking to revive classical theism, yet is doing it in a way that I think is going to be ultimately destructive to its long-term sustainability. And I'll explain what that is as I go on. So I think a lot of them, and I'll name them eventually, have unduly married themselves to particular metaphysical doctrines that they, number one, don't understand, and number two, are, are overly narrow. So they're taking the great tradition, and instead of looking at the great tradition in all its glory and all its complexity, they're shrinking it down to this narrow slice of the tradition. That is part of the tra tradition, but is not the whole story and the whole texture of the tra tradition. So these thinkers, one of the things they often do is villainize what they call modern theology and modern philosophy. So all that ails the world uh, can be summarized as modern. In contrast to this approach and this narrative, I want to defend and argue that classical theism, as historically understood, can and should be retranslated into modern language with the assistance of modern metaphysics. So such a project, it's not a rejection of classical theism. That's not the goal here. I'm a classical theist. I want to affirm that. I want to defend that. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the continued promise and ethos of classical theism. In fact, I think anything less than this sort of plundering the, the moderns is one that's deeply out of sync with the classical tradition. Classical theism is to be a continued pro project of resourcement and retrieval rather than repristination. So to achieve this, I'm going to first walk through this problem of what I call monolithic repristination. Then I'm going to show from the tradition a couple of examples of how this, I think, the tradition is functioning with different various philosophical schools and systems before I give a couple of examples of what modern metaphysics looks like for classical theism today. So I'll begin with the problem. So nearly, I mean, nearly everybody agrees classical theism, it has this storied tradition, but it's experienced somewhat of a decline over the last two to 300 years, a regression somewhere around the Enlightenment period. Think 18th century, even 17th century, 19th century, 20th century. It starts to slowly find more people attacking it, and it's whether it be the nasty philosophers like Hobbes or Descartes or Hume or Kant or the revisionary theologians such as Barth or Boltzmann or, or Hartshorn or Dorner or anybody. These guys are the bad guys, the villains of the story. And, I mean, the Enlightenment's dream of progress, the scientific revolution, it obviously deeply impacted theology. The nature of theology, the nature of philosophy, it did have serious impact. The dramatic success of the new way of scientific inquiry, it did destabilize these old methods and the presuppositions in nearly all the fields of thought. So instead of philosophy merely being the handmaiden of, to theology, now it somehow appears to be almost like that theology, guided by natural science, had its own unique set of authority to challenge how we think about God and the world. I mean, after all, given the major revisions of previously held beliefs, like the nature of the cosmos, which is a massive change in thought, it seems quite natural for the intellectual context to encourage rethinking everything. So entire libraries devoted to that question. 
I'm not here to talk about the 17th, 18th century change on metaphysics, epistemology, especially religion. My intention isn't to question these narratives or to recount them. I am not a historian. I don't pretend to be. Um, nor is my intention to suggest we should seek to revive these radically revisionary accounts. So when I'm talking about modern, retrieving them, I'm not talking about let me go and retrieve Boltmann. Don't care about Boltmann. Not interested. Not my project. Maybe somebody is. Go for it. Um, my goal here is to show how certain modern theologians, in the sense of contemporary to today, uh, yes, I do use that terminology somewhat provocatively because then I can categorize the people who don't like modern as modern, uh, which is somewhat fun. Uh, I think they have naively taken this very broad narrative to imply that all theology and philosophy today have been so corrupted that the only way to rescue classical theism from the clutches of modernity is to repristinate a highly selective portion of the medieval era. In other words, they have advanced a brand new conflict thesis. But this time it isn't between science and the Christian faith, but between medieval orthodoxy, a particular version of medieval orthodoxy, and modern metaphysics. It's almost sectarianism is what they've almost really had this approach of. And so instead of capitulating the pressures of, of polemics and merely nodding along and ignoring what I call this anti-modern modern thesis, I want to argue that while the Enlightenment did disrupt and challenge classical theism in many ways, the modern era is not necessarily at odds with the metaphysical underpinnings of classical theism. In fact, modernity is incredibly variegated, just like the medieval era, and in many ways is returning with renewed interest into resurrecting pre-modern and medieval metaphysics in freshly modern ways. It may be news to some, but naturalism is not the only game in town. Neo-Aristotelianism, for instance, has seen massive growth in popularity. Therefore, to claim that modern philosophy is necessarily at odds with classical theism is simply misinformed and is out of step with the tradition. And it's good news that modern philosophy is ripe for plundering for the future of classical theism. But that's getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let's, let's get to two examples of these anti-modern modern theologians. And the two of them I'm going to talk about, Craig Carter and Matthew Barrett. So they were mentioned earlier by David Haynes, so apparently we've got some issues. The reason I'm going to talk about them is, number one, they're very, 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 very popular. And they have a significant impact, at least on my sphere of people, the, the groups that I run in. They are very influential, and I think they are doing, ultimately, long-term damage to the health of classical theism. They have some right doctrines, they're doing some good things, but the way they're going about it is unhelpful. So I've taken the advice of one of my supervisors, one of my master supervisors, who, when I was first thinking about what do I write a master's on, he told me, well, what, what is it that pisses you off? Write about that. <laughs> and so I've really kind of followed that in a lot of my writing. It's really motivated me. Like, all right, what's, what's making me mad today? I don't want to be married to that approach because that can be unhealthy. But... <laughs> There is a sense which that can motivate you to write really good stuff or provocative things, I guess. So I'm trying not to be overly polemical, but let's just, let's just look at Carter and what Carter and Barrett say. So these guys are super popular. Craig Carter, Canadian theologian. I don't know what that says about him. Sorry, David. Um, you'll find him pejoratively blaming modern theology and philosophy for literally all elements of society. I would be surprised if it didn't uh, become an issue for literally everything. Um, you take your pick. My kitchen sink breaking this afternoon is <laughs> modern. Um, who accepts these modern metaphysics? What the modern metaphysics are, other than potentially Hegel, um, why it's so bad to accept modern metaphysics. So let's, let's look at some claims. He says, 
Modern metaphysics, metaphysics is, quote, very different, incompatible, and contradictory with Nicaea. Well, that's bad. He claims it wants to fit the Bible into a naturalistic framework. Sounds bad. Central to it is a loss of divine transcendence. Again, bad. It thinks that God is part, if I can turn the page, of the universe. So God is apparently part of the universe for modern metaphysics. It's revisionary. It's uncritical of its metaphysical assumptions. It considers the findings of physics and biology to be unchallengeable. It rejects a transcendent God and objectively existing telos and nature, metaphysical realism by which things have natures, and a linear concept of history. It's better understood as a complete rejection of metaphysics and is a reversion to ancient mythology. Given these examples, I think it's quite clear that Carter dislikes all that's modern in metaphysics. And given his disdain, he suggests the only way forward is Christian Platonism, which we've sufficiently covered a little bit. Um, indeed, he suggests that creedal orthodoxy is so bound up with the metaphysical commitments that disentangling them is nearly impossible. For it's Christian Platonism that is, quote, the standard account shared by almost all your theological heroes prior to 1800, end quote. But, of course, I've offered these statements to a room... Uh, I haven't offered these statements to a room of modern philosophers, but if I did they would likely stare at me hearing these things and say, who is he talking about? Unfortunately, such rhetoric is not limited to Carter alone. Uh, you can listen to American Southern Baptist theologian Matthew Barrett next. While Barrett is more targeted in his approach than Carter, uh, he does understand that modernism uh, seems... I mean, I guess... Un he, he understands that modernism is not identical, right? I can't even read what I'm saying. Okay, now I know what I'm saying, so let me tell you. He thinks of modernism as almost like identical to certain modern popular theologians like William Lane Craig, uh, Wayne Grudem, J.P. Moreland, that have embraced social definitions of the Trinity. He makes all sorts of sweeping claims regarding to that sort of thing. So let's look at that. Example, Barrett claims that, quote, modern thinkers have transformed theology into anthropology, end quote. Therefore, he seeks to rescue us from, quote, inhaling the smog of modern theology, end quote. Modern Christianity turns out to be a, quote, haunted house, end quote. And when discussing the attributes of God, he says that modern and contemporary Christian thought has either despised them or neglected them altogether, preferring instead a God who is like us rather than distinct from us and above us. Which is why he claims that modernity is at odds with historic orthodoxy. It operates with a hermeneutic that is entirely neutral. Similarly, when discussing the Trinity... It is modern Trinitarianism that is snuffing out the Orthodox Trinity, and so on. Now, to be fair, Barrett is far less polemical than Carter um, when it comes to modern metaphysics, though modern language is, is bad all across the board. And it's Grudem and Moreland and Craig are the people who are the bad guys in mind, and not necessarily everybody. But you, you, these cr criticisms of modern thinkers, I think, still remain sloppy and un unhelpful. And his works are filling the popular imaginations of a generation of thinkers and scholars. And I want to avoid pejorative labeling since much of modern thinking is actually consistent with and beneficial to the classical tradition. So let me walk through a little bit of how I think of the classical tradition in relation to modern metaphysics, modern theology, and past. So that I talked about the anti-modern, modern thesis Many theologians, when they have that, are faced with a dilemma. If all that is modern is toxic, how are we supposed to do theology today? So the path forward for classical theism then apparently becomes a project of repristination of times past, oftentimes of an unnuanced and uncritical Thomism, 
I'm a Thomist-ish, so don't hear me saying bad, bad Thomas. I'm not saying that. Because modernism is apparently ir irreconcilable with classical theism. Modern metaphysics is a toxic smog that must be avoided at all costs. So while I don't contest that some or even much of modern theology, modern metaphysics or whatever is bad news and needs to be avoided, um, I'm not saying that. I do want to argue, though, that such a totalizing methodology is deeply at odds with the classical tradition itself, besides the fact that it is a false thesis. Instead, the tradition has modeled an eclectic opportunism, that's what I call it, um, building on the work of Grace Sutanto regarding metaphysics. So I'm going to prove that here, and I'm going to show you Augustine, I'm going to show you Thomas, I'm going to show you Richard Muller, and I'm going to show you some Herman Vavink. Hopefully I get him right, because James Eglinton is here in the room. <laughs> And I'm a philosopher, not, not a historian. So if I botch that, just please forget that that happened. <laughs> so in thinking what eclectic opportunism is, it's, it's somewhat of a form of what Alistair McGrath has called critical realism. Um, but let me walk through what that really looks like. I'm going to give you some definitions because I am a philosopher. So I think it means two things. First, the classical tradition is eclectic in its usage of sources. It's not beholden to any one philosophical school, be it Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Humean, or Berkeleyan. It is willing to create a Frankenstein philosophy of sorts in support of its doctrinal claims. Not Frankenstein in an ugly sense, but there's a sense in which you, you take good things from other pieces and you put them together. So I'm not talking about Frankenstein as like ugly or scary, but just in the sense that you're building something out of these different pieces. Now, while I think there are, I mean, when you think of Frankenstein, just Roman Catholics and the Eucharist, talk to them about the metaphysics there. They're putting together some spooky stuff. Um, I can say that, right? There's no Roman Catholics in the room? All right, cool. Um, now, I don't even know where I was. So, yeah, well, okay, so there's fault lines. I'll tell you, there, there are fault lines in the tradition. So I do not deny that there are things that everybody shares in common, that they affirm certain certain things, um, even, and especially sub-segments of the tradition. Obviously, there are certain segments that are going to all affirm more robust things. But, and I do think it has leaned more deeply platonic, as much as I hate to say that. Um, there is no one main school, though. Some are neoplatonic through and through, like Augustine. Others are Aristotelian, like Thomas. Um, Edwards is Barclayan. I mean, he's an idealist. You've got even, uh, I might get in trouble for saying this, uh, Calvin, in some ways, is like a proto-Humean, uh, especially on the laws of nature. So I can, I can defend that. I've got a footnote, so if you're a nerd, go look at the footnote, and I, I defend it. Um, but each of these thinkers, despite their varying metaphysical commitments, is within the classical tradition, though some are more daring and creative than others. Very much so Edwards, daring and creative and confusing oftentimes. Now, that's eclectic. Now, opportunism, I mean that the classical tradition's construction of theology is what Scott Shalowski has called a context relative matter. So in other words, there is a reason certain thinkers gravitate to certain philosophical schools and utilize them. They present an opportunity to advance and defend classical theology that didn't previously exist. There's a reason Augustine is Neoplatonic and Thomas is Aristotelian, because those philosophical schools were the best philosophy of the day. They considered it natural and assumed that old and outdated frameworks, while useful for their previous advocates, could be hindrances to further clarity in defense of the tradition. Therefore, eclectic opportunism as it relates to the classical tradition is in one sense a dogmatic minimalism wherein the metaphysical commitments that undergird classical theism 
seek to say as little dogmatically as possible while making clear that certain ways of thinking are off limits. So let me quote Brendan Case. He is in no sense a confessional thinker, but I think he gets this right. He says, I take it that the practice of constructive theology requires a potentially reckless disregard for the subdisciplinary boundaries that that cordon off the various theological subdisciplines from one another and from the other university disciplines. This is because the theologian is bound to think and speak and write under the discipline of the Lord's unified self-revelation in the Old and New Testaments as they have been received in the broad Catholic theological tradition. So I like what he says there about this reckless disregard. So I I don't want to be be beholden to one philosophical school. If there's another rising school that has useful information, engage it, work with it, sift it, disagree with it, but take the stuff that's good from it. So I think this sort of eclectic opportunism, you see it displayed in pieces throughout the tradition. So let's focus on Paragon examples, Augustine and Thomas, briefly. I mean, Augustine, we've talked about him. He's famous for his plundering the Egyptians claim. But I think the logic behind this is that we always ought to be ready to plunder the very best of our neighbor's philosophy and take it captive to Christ. We're given minds of providence wherein we did not create but dug and received treasures. As he argues, a person who is good and a good and true Christian should realize that truth belongs to his Lord wherever it is found, gathering and acknowledging it even in pagan literature. So if Augustine were alive today, I think he'd want us to understand how we can take modern thought captive to Christ as well. He would wonder what quantum physics could do to buttress our understanding of God in the world. Modifying where necessary, rejecting where incompatible, but taking where it was useful and good and made sense to help defend it. I think he would take modern metaphysical debates and analytic philosophy over the nature and location of properties and seek to plunder the good and reject the bad. And I think Thomas, on the other hand, probably would be even more interested in doing this plundering of modern metaphysics. He would seek to rework the most cutting edge and persuasive areas of philosophy and Christianize them, just as he did with Aristotelianism. The very same motivations he had to take Aristotle captive to Christ would lead him to take modern metaphysics captive to Christ. I don't mean to suggest that Augustine or Thomas would be hardline analytic theologians if they were alive today, though I think that would be fun. That's a lot of projection and anachronism, and I don't want to do that. But I do mean to suggest that their methodological program would be absolutely lead them to engaging the latest and best philosophy in service of Christianity and classical theism. Now, I've got Richard Muller here on Reformed Orthodoxy and Eclectic Opportunism. Lots of quotes. I'm not going to read them all. If you want to read them all, go look at the paper on the Google Drive. But I quoted him a lot because I think there is a, almost a, a sense in which the Reformed Orthodox are not eclectic. They're very hard-lined, just this is the only way. And I think there's a breadth of usage of philosophy in, in the tradition there. So it's not just Thomas and Augustine who are like this, I think, that we're, would be dabbling with modernity. I think the Reformed Orthodox would actually drink deeply of the well of modern metaphysics and filter out the bad and ingest the good. They would eat and drink. I mean, eating and drinking, I think that's actually an ideal example uh, for their practice. They would take something foreign to their substance as Christians and ingest it, what's edible, and not eat what's not edible, and then would transform that something that was previously separate from themselves into virtual parts of themselves that were sustaining their lives. So consider historian, par excellence, Muller, I mean, he takes on the Reformed Orthodox period. I mean, I think everybody agrees he's pretty much, at least, you know, if he's not the Reformed Orthodox historian, he's, 
he's up there. So he says, quote, the relative philosophical cohesion of any one of the many theological systems of the later Middle Ages, 16th and 17th centuries, was not achieved by an exclusive allegiance to a particular thinker in the classical tradition, end quote. That goes absolutely against what the popular people are saying today. Matthew Barrett, Craig Carter, absolutely in the face of what they're saying. Elsewhere again, the object of the scholastic theologian or philosopher was typically not so much to be Aristotelian as to be the formulator and mediator of a Christian philosophical model that both used and refused various elements of the classical tradition. Now, I'm going to read you one big quote here. I might skim some of it, but I think this will get to the idea. The philosophy of the late 16th and 17th century reformed ought to be understood as a concerted effort to draw on the tradition of classical and Western thought for the sake of constructing a philosophical perspective suitable both to the altered theological and churchly context and to the academic needs of the rising Protestant colleges, academies, and universities of the post-Reformation era. What is more, in the course of these debates, the Reformed Orthodox did not merely look backward into the Christian philosophy of the scholastic past. They stood in dialogue with the philosophy of their own time and often can be seen to parallel, perhaps even sometimes anticipate, the work of thinkers like Mellenbranch and Leibniz. I have no idea, Cambridge Platonist guy, somebody can tell me how to say his name. To call such theology and philosophy Aristotelian rather misses both its content and its context. Thus, the Aristotelianism of the Christian tradition in its movement through the Renaissance and Reformation into the era of orthodoxy appears not as a philosophical program rooted in the historical Aristotle, but rather as a highly variegated tradition grounded in long-standing discussions of the hylomorphic understanding of substance and its corollary, a conceptualist theory of knowledge that grounds knowledge of a thing in the thing and or in the ability of the knower to abstract forms from things. So the main idea of that is he's saying they're not just going and just repristinating what they heard before. They're in conversation and utilizing what's going on in their contemporary context. Their methodology is not saying reject everything that's modern because it's all bad. This is the essence of the classical tradition. I think both eclectic and opportunistic. Unafraid to revise, unafraid to appropriate, yet resolute in its core commitments and willing to appropriate whatever will assist in defending them. So it's that next reason that prominent classical theologians like Alistair McGrath have argued that natural sciences today offer Christian theology precisely the role that Platonism offered our patristic and Aristotelianism, and Aristotelianism our modern or our medieval forebears. So he's saying, look, there are things today that can assist us in the same ways that these older philosophical and scientific traditions assisted previous Christians to make sense of and defend the core claims of orthodoxy. You can do that with modern theology and philosophy. It's possible. In fact, it's modern thinkers like Leibniz who even reintroduce older categories of Aristotelianism back into theological and philosophical discourse as serious options. So I, I highlight all this, and especially their Muller, because obviously he's the premier post-Reformation historian. Second, because many of the claims from what I call the anti-modern modern theologians um, would claim to be part of this heritage, heritage and in even preserving it, yet their polemics against modern thinking are completely at odds with the way the Reformed Orthodox think about contemporary metaphysics up to their day. These classical theologians did not fear deviating from Thomas, just as their medieval predecessors definitely deviated 
Thomas was considered heretical at certain points and has some really weird stuff in some areas. But you actually have to read Thomas to know that. They did not fear appropriating SCOTUS. They didn't fear appropriating forms of nominalism, not nominalism as a whole thing, nominalism in particular areas. Even Suarez, and sometimes Descartes, even though I wish they would never retrieve Descartes in any sense, Descartes finds his way into things, unfortunately. <laughs> but the point remains there, are, there is an eclectic opportunistic spirit in the classical tradition which allows for freedom to appropriate from very, the very best philosophy and there's no fear that one day realizing such metaphysics is going to be unhelpful, outdated misguided, fundamentally at odds with the core commitments of doctrinal or I guess core commitments of classical theism because classical theism isn't supposed to codify literally everything it's meant to codify certain claims about God, like him being timeless, immutable, simple, and impassable. And whatever it takes to defend those is good. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about Herman Bobbank. How much time do I have? I want to make sure I give sufficient time. You have 17 minutes. So, oh, perfect. Or you can go longer. You know, I'm not going to go longer. I want to answer all the Q&A stuff. So finally, let's look at... The, de- the modern and deeply classical theologian Herman Bobbank. So Bobbank... I mean, for him, modern insights and appropriations are not diametrically opposed enemies. So Corey Brock has argued at length through examining Bavink's usage of Friedrich Schleiermacher that Bavink is orthodox yet modern. While Bavink is resolutely committed to his orthodox and confessional tradition, modern theology is given space to advance dogmatic theology. So long as it refrains from contradicting that dogmatic theology, it's given space to defend it, to explain it, to advance it, he blends, as Brock and Sutanto put it, a principled orthodoxy and irenic learning. He is able to blend these two worlds because there is no pristine era of theology. Repristination of any era of theology is a fool's errand. The goal of the dogmatic and classical thinker is reappropriation, and thus modern insights and modifications are necessary. So as Brock puts it, dogmatics looks back but pays attention above all to today. The vision of dogmatics fits well with this vision, I think fits well with Bavink's own claims regarding retrieval. He says, well, with Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, we differentiate that which is essential and truly reformed from that of the spirit of the age. We do not return to them after the fact to repristinate them and their work as much as to respect their value in general. But through their teaching, better than even they, to hold, to hold fast to and to speak out a Reformation principle. Not to return to them, but to go forward from them is our motto. So I think Bavink is, a cl- is clear that the goal of theology is not repersonation, not a return, but a going forward. Thus, Bavink's own met- methodology encourages such contemporary appropriation of modern metaphysics. But it's not only his posture toward modern resources that is amiable to my aims, it is his theological and philosophical eclecticism. I mean, he's not beholden to a single philosophical tradition. I mean, listen to his claim. He says theology is not in need of a specific philosophy. It's not per se hostile to any philosophical system and does not a priori without criticism give priority to the philosophy of Plato or of Kant or vice versa, but it brings along its own criteria, tests all philosophy by them, and takes over what it deems true and useful. What it needs is philosophy in general. So I think he is a model example of what I'm trying to argue for. Now, when it comes to plundering metaphysics, I mean, I think common grace didn't somehow disappear 
in the 18th century. It continues on. So I don't want to say chronological snobbery that everything in the past is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's useful stuff here today. It continues on. We can actually appropriate some of it. So I want to try to give you a couple of examples uh, to do this. And it's, it, it, I'm trying to do a creative usage of the current moment and current metaphysics to help explain and defend classical theism. Um, and a brief word of clarification just to make sure that we're clear. Once again, what I mean by modern is not a technical historical claim. I mean it generally as in the colloquial sense. If you said modern, it's just close to today. And then I don't mean that we need to overturn all that is classical in metaphysics. I actually am very much a neo-Aristotelian at heart and think that's the right way to think about metaphysics. But the reality of modern metaphysics is variegated to a significant degree, which is part of the issue. But I think a lot of it's actually returning that neo-Aristotelianism. So you're seeing this return to some older forms of thinking with some modern nuances and updates and explanations. So the point being, classical theism, it's nimble enough to use these different frameworks. So I've got three in here. I realize that some of these are papers in themselves. So I'm not going to talk about all of them. You can read them if you want. I try to condense them. A lot of them require a lot of prior knowledge, and I understand that the context I'm talking to, some of it we don't have all the prior knowledge. So like the first one, I'm, I, I was going to explain the modern metaphysics of location and how that can make sense for how God is omnipresent everywhere and yet is still simple and is still timeless and is still immutable. How, how is that possible? Well, you've got to cash out various senses of location. So I'll try to give a high-level view of this. Let's, let's think about location as I'm here in the dugout. That means I'm located there. Or I, I'm in my house, I'm located in my house. Um, I'm in the dining hall, I'm located at each place. So you can have different senses of location. You could be exactly located there. You could have your entire location there. And I'm not going to cash out the differences because they're fine-grained and it would take too much time for what, how much I have left. There's partial location, so partial location makes sense, obviously. I, I mean, you're partially, like maybe your arm's sticking outside the room, so half of you somewhere, half of you somewhere else. There's this idea of whole location, which differs from entire and exact location in very specific ways. And there's this concept of multi-location, which is the key one that I wanted to key in on to help explain how it is that God can be, what I say is uh, divine omnipresence is supposed to be saying he's wholly located everywhere. And this idea of multi-location that you find in modern metaphysics can help explain some of the puzzles that go on and give conceptual clarity to what's going on. So there's really, there's a Thomistic sort of way of thinking about divine omnipresence where God's not actually really present everywhere. He's present by his power and his knowledge. So this is like causal nexus. If he can know what's going on and can causally act there, he's present. But he's not like actually, there's not like divine stuff everywhere. But there's an Augustinian and Anselmian way of talking about omnipresence that seems to indicate that he really is everywhere. There's something over and above just simply being omniscient and omnipresent, or omniscient and, what did I say? Omnipotent. There's something over and above those two attributes that accounts for what omnipresence is supposed to be. And so this idea of whole location and multi-location is designed, I think, to help explain this. Um, if you want to know more about this, I suggest Ross Inman's work. 
He's got several pieces on divine omnipresence, working out a theory of location. I have some differences and nuances compared to him. He's got a recent small one that's very easy to understand, about 12 pages in the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology that I think is, is really useful. And he's, we owe him a great debt for walking back. You can't find works on dedicated divine omnipresence. It, people aren't writing on this topic in significant measure. So he's really resurrecting a field that's just non-existent. So thank you, Ross, for doing that. Um, another one that I wanted to talk about was relations, a theory of relations. So something I've noticed, especially critics of classical theism, is what often happens is they come to the Thomistic doctrine of a real relation where Thomas says God is not really related to creation and they t- think that means something that it doesn't mean. So they think, what do you mean God's not really related to creation? And then they want to reject classical theism because they think, well, I pray to God. I, you know, he comforts me when I'm, I'm depressed. I'm obviously really related to him. What do you mean I'm not really related? But that is a term of art in the tradition, this idea of a real relation. And what I want to do with the assistance of modern mes- the modern metaphysical apparatuses that go on with the different metaphysics of relations is suggest a different path forward for talking about relations. And I suggest, unless we're talking historically, let's just avoid the idea of the Thomistic real relation because it just confuses people. So when we talk about a Thomistic real relation, there's a couple of necessary conditions. I'll just, I'll walk through those. So take Gandalf and, and Frodo. So Gandalf is related to Frodo. There is a relation between them. Let's say Gandalf is taller than Frodo. There is a relation of taller than between them. So that's that's what a relation is. It could be all sorts of relations like um, Major League Baseball not punishing the cheating Houston Astros or something. There's like a relation there that you pick out. And in a lot of the tradition, they try to figure out what this relation metaphysically amounts to. Uh, But second for this... For it to be a real relation on a Thomistic account, um, Gandalf and Frodo have to be really distinct extramental things. So there has to be an actual relation. There has to be something they're related. They're taller than. They're actually distinct. They're not the same individual. And this third thing is there's a real extramental foundation in Gandalf for this relation of taller than. So what I end up trying to suggest and working out is that on a modern metaphysical scheme, for what you would really say that a relation is actually a metaphysical item in the universe, you don't need that third category. You can get rid of that one and call it a real relation and not have the metaphysical problems that come along with describing God as having a Thomistic real relation with creation because then it implicates him in change. It becomes problematic for divine simplicity. So I'm like, when we talk about real relations, let's, talk, let's, let's use the language that these people, the modern people are thinking with, use their categories and say, yes, there's a category of real relation. It's not the Thomistic real relation. So God can be really related to you, but not in that way. So that it doesn't cause undue pressure on classical theism that just doesn't need to be there. When you want to talk historically, use the, the term of art, the real relation that's Thomistic, but let's just define our terms and let's walk through what metaphysically is going on here. And that's used in this contemporary period to make sense of it. Now, the one that I want to spend a little bit of time on, if whatever time I have left, I'm going to walk through a little bit more, is 
the metaphysics of modality for the, for the sake of divine simplicity. So modality is about ways a proposition can be true or ways in which an item has a property necessarily, contingently, or possibility. Possibly. So I'll take the concept of possibility as primitive. So if something is possible, it could be otherwise. The blue coffee mug on my desk, it could be possibly be red. Uh, I could possibly become president of the United States, um, etc. Now, to be necessary is for it to be impossible that it's not the case. It's necessary that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's necessary that I'm a human. There is no possible world wherein I become a crocodile. Well, some people think that's legit possible. I don't think, I don't think it is. Um, so that, you have to take some sort of kind of essentialism as true for that to be the case. But let's, let's just pretend it is and say that's not possible for me to become a crocodile. Now, to be contingent is for it to not, necess not be necessarily the case, yet nevertheless be the case. So take my blue coffee mug. Again, it's contingently blue since it is currently blue, but it could be red. Now, beyond these basic distinctions, it does get a little bit tricky. There are numerous senses of possibility and necessity and contingency, but I'm going to ignore that. And depending on the thinker, there are more or less senses of necessity. So Bonavent if you read Bonaventure, he's going to say there's at least three main categories with like 15 subheadings when it comes to senses of necessity. So let's just think necessity first. Aristotle, he recognizes two senses of necessity. First, there's this absolute necessity. That means that something must be or is what is called de re necessity. So it's the necessity of the consequent. It would be contradictory for it to be otherwise. But within absolute necessity, things can be distinguished. There is a narrow sense in which things are logically necessary, like the truths of logic. But there's also a wider sense of logical necessity, like the truths of mathematics, that red is a color, and no numbers are human beings. Nowadays, in modern uh, philosophy, these get called logical and metaphysical necessity. But there's also a hypothetical necessity that belongs to a causal or contingent event. This is the necessity of the consequence, or dedicto necessity. These are typically categorized under causal or natural or you know, physical necessity. So take a few examples of this sense of necessity. While something may be naturally necessary given the physical laws of the universe, like for me to be unable to jump to the top of the Mount Everest because of gravity, well, if the laws were changed, I very well could have that possibility to jump to the top of Mount Everest. So this isn't strictly a logical necessity. It lacks absoluteness because there are conditions in which it wouldn't be necessary. So we take stock, absolute necessity, it's a necessity that cannot fail to be the case, whereas hypothetical necessity is a necessary, a necessity that cannot fail to be the case given some other proposition or conjunction of propositions. The core difference un is that under hypothetical necessity, it is not absolutely fixed. It is only necessary under certain circumstances. So armed with these modal distinctions, which Alvin Plantinga in his work, Nature of Necessity, I mean, he, groundbreaking explanations and nuances of senses of necessity. This is what I'm drawing significantly from him. With these distinctions, classical theism can overcome apparent problems in divine simplicity, like the puzzle of what is called modal collapse that R.T. Mullins has uh, very fashionably advanced over the last five years. Mullins has argued at length that divine simplicity destroys God's freedom because it entails that everything is necessary, including God's creation of the world and this world in particular. 
But with the assistance of these modern modal metaphysical distinctions, I think classical theism can simply explain that God, the willing of God is absolutely necessary, um, but the reference of the willing is hypothetically necessary, which does not lead to the modal collapse that Mullins wants to argue for, and therefore can pre preserve divine simplicity. So these distinction between these two senses of necessity are based on the distinctions between God's absolute power, what God could will, and God's ordained power, what God has willed. So once a certain action has taken place, it becomes necessary that an effect be caused, for example, creation. So God's act of actualizing is hypothetically necessitated by his choice. I've got examples in here. But the point being, modern metaphysics is undergirding my explanation and my defense here against this modal collapse. And so I think it seems evident that the anti-modern modern thesis from theologians like Carter and Barrett, um, they've ultimately failed to not only understand modern metaphysics, but to drink deeply of the well of how the classical tradition has interacted with modern theology and modern philosophy. It doesn't mean you accept everything, and it could be you're in a period where it really sucks. But there is always something good there. There are things that you can pillage. So... That's overall my defense here. I think I've tried to argue modern metaphysics is not necessarily at odds with classical theism. I've claimed that this anti-modern, modern theologians of the pop Thomistic movement have failed to properly grapple with the internal logic of the classical tradition and thus have amputated themselves from a host of treasures lying within Egypt ripe for appropriation. My thesis has not been that modern metaphysics or modern philosophy is perfect. In fact, much would be jettisoned. However, my thesis has been that it can be of great use and aid, and we shouldn't reject the wisdom of the light of nature simply because it's in a different era than our favorite heroes. While there is always the temptation to return to the glory of the days of time past, wherein theology was perfect and pristine, we ought not bury the talent that the Lord has given us in the sand, lest it be lost. All right, thanks. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.